This is RDQI. Farmer Jay here. Hope you will. I'm sure your current lawnmower is just fine. But did you know that you can mow your lawn in half the time with the Wildcat tractor? That's right. Think about what you could be doing in that time. You could be tending to your crops, maybe feeding your goats, but really, you'll be saving a lot of time. Call your local Wildcat tractor dealer and ask the sales representative about the X350T riding mower. Ryan, do you think human nature is universal? Hey, that's a good one. Yeah. Is human nature universal? Well, I think a, a fun way to look at this would be to look through, I don't know, like old, old ways of thinking, um, old ways of telling stories, right? Because why, why overcomplicate this question with us from a 21st century perspective? So why not talk about it through mythology? Because, I mean, myths sprung up in disparate civilizations across the globe around a similar time frame, millennia or two about. So maybe through kind of looking at mythology, we could see if there is a way that, if there's like any core truth to that, the idea that it is like a human, there is one human experience that is possible and we just all experience a different reality inside of that. Because, I mean, a lot of myths do talk about the same thing, don't they? I mean, more or less. Yeah. What brought up this question is I was I was looking at trickster mythology. So what trickster mythology is, is this idea of uh, a story that explains a morally ambiguous character and the trickery that 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 you know that character is usually a lazy um selfish devious manipulative person or animal or whatever whatever the the being is in the myth and they tend to try and manipulate and trick and because of this something happens and explains why the world is the way it is right so they're you know a nazi a nazi a nancy um which is a an african trickster myth the uh, spider basically tries to trick um, another being into making it rain, and he does. And then he tricks um, <laughs> he tricks an an ant into uh, basically like he gets he gets punished for this. And then he I'm gonna I'm gonna start this one over again. Sounds good. So, Anansi is an African trickster myth where. There's a spider, Anansi, and he tricks a magical being into helping it, uh, helping it produce more rain. And then he gets found out and he gets punished for this. And his punishment is to carry around something on his back forever. But he then tricks an ant. He says, hey, can you hold this for me? And then he runs away. And then the ant has to carry things on its back for the rest of its life. And that's why ants carry things when they walk around. So, okay, so that's a way of explaining why ants behave the way they behave, right? And it involves yeah. a trickster. Yeah, and there's a lot of interesting things about the trickster myth, which I'd like to talk about some other point. Like, you know, the trickster is, it's morally ambiguous. It's a morally ambiguous character, but it doesn't necessarily, the story isn't, isn't a moral 
fable, right? It's not telling you that, oh, tricksters are bad and you should be good because the trickster wins. I mean, Anansi the spider, you know, basically gets out, gets off scot-free. Mm-hmm. Um, but this idea of a trickster is prevalent in many other cultures and, and myth cultures around the world. So think of, you know, Loki and in Norse mythology, um, the the coyote trickster in American mythology, Native American mythology. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it it leads to this interesting point that Joseph Campbell, um, famous anthropologist from the ooh, 50s or 60s, I believe, maybe 70s, um, and he his thesis was that there is this perennial philosophy, or if you want to think about it a different way, a universality to human nature that is evidenced in the fact that you have these myths, these mythical archetypes that is, that basically came into being thousands of miles apart at the same time or, or different times in the world. You can't really trace a causality. You can't trace a um, some kind of call it (laughs) genealogy to these myths and that they arose when they did because there's some sort of universality to human existence that Mm -hmm. this trickster archetype is just embedded in our psyche. Right, 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 right. And, you know, bring up archetype and you always bring up my good boy, Jung, Carl Jung, um, which he ascribes these ideas that basically there are these, again, archetypes that we, we almost all humans can identify in civilization. So I, I get it. There's some common markers, if you will, across any society. There's going to be more than one person because otherwise it's not a society. So there's going to be political dynamics. There's going to be strife. There's going to be people who feel like they're slighted. People are going to get pissed off at each other. So th- those dynamics are going to happen in any society. But then we're taking it a step further in mythology in this idea here, if I'm summarizing this correctly to saying that there's a type of journey in this case that um, a hero or that might exist in a myth needs to go on. Is that kind of what you're saying? And that's different than just everyday life? Uh, I'm not quite sure where you were going with that. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let Let me rerun that then. Right, so there's these archetypes across different cultures. Um, the Jungian archetypes that have been laid out typically kind of name them in a certain way, and that's a different different vein of thought, but connected to mythology. So is Campbell saying that there is... Because I'm not very familiar with the hero's journey, but my understanding is it's kind of like um, in the myth of Hercules. Hercules had the 12 tasks he had to go out and do. He went on adventures to accomplish them, after he completed those tasks, something happens to him, and then the story's over. Is that kind of what Campbell's getting getting after, or is it more in-depth than that? This is, a, I, I think, a gross oversimplification of what Campbell is all about. And honestly, I, I just really started looking into this, so I, this could be way off, and I could be issuing a, an RDQI retraction. Um, but I think what he's getting at is that the human experience shows itself in ways that appear different on the surface. So aesthetically they are dressed differently. You know, Loki is 
different than the coyote than is the, that is different than the spider because there's a there's a part of your environment that's going to impact you know that's the development of culture but there's a there is a fundamental sameness that shines through just by virtue of us being human beings and so even though the trickster comes up in different guises and shows itself in different ways, it's essentially the same thing because it's a universal human experience. Ah, I see. Okay. That makes a little bit more sense to me. And I'll be honest, I, you know, I, I want to believe this and I, and really until I started looking into this. I I did. I kind of had this in the back of my head that there is really a universal human experience. There's this perennial philosophy and and what makes us human kind of binds us together. Um, and it it shows up in different ways, but we really are all the same. <laughs> you know, I wanted to believe in a warm and fuzzy way that, you know, we're all kind of one. Um, so let me ask you, because obviously at one point you held those warm and fuzzy feelings about the hero's journey, and now you're saying not so much. What was it about your <laughs> your understanding and your accrual of understanding that changed your perspective here? Um, it was an interesting YouTube video, actually. And it was the first time that I've ever seen um, or heard somebody disagreeing and arguing against this perennial philosophy, which granted, I really haven't done my my full homework. So I don't know the extent to which, um, you know, how, but what, what this, this person was saying is that in academia and in the study of mythology today, academics have gone really against Joseph Campbell's um, idea that there are what he was saying is that within the study of mythology, there are two schools of thought. There are the particularists and the comparativists and the comparativists are what Joseph Campbell, he's looking for the similarities between these different myths and what the particularists, which are these new, uh, this new school of thought is saying is that you can, if if you are trying to find similarities in myths, you can certainly find them. But if mm. you look at the similarities to the exclusion of the differences, you can exaggerate the similarities, you can downplay the differences, and you can come up with a whole line of reasoning that seems to lend credence to your point but it's really a selective argumentation. Mm, yeah, kind of like the old wisdom, which is that everything looks like a nail to a hammer, right? So if, if mm-hmm. you can imagine yourself as a hammer, the only thing you know what to do is to hit a nail. So everything's going to look like a nail to you, right? Is that kind of, it sounds like what you're getting at here is that you can confirm what you want to confirm out of a very rich text by selectively choosing the data points you're going to accept and kind of just ignoring the ones you're not going to, which is a very common thing in especially anthropology from the 40s and 50s, which I looked up Campbell. I think his first book on this idea came out in 49. So anthropology in the 40s and 50s, I'm not going to say it has the, um, A, that I'm not an expert, nor should you 
use my words for, you know, judging the world, but B, anthropology in the 40s and 50s wasn't exactly the most scientific field, even though, again, it's not really science because it's not all based on numerical data points. So Mm -hmm. it sounds like he was kind of, he might have been in a place in time where he was trying to confirm things to bring about an understanding in a really young, nascent field, which is anthropology. But you're kind of saying that from a more nuanced perspective from people currently in the 21st century, not the 20th 20th century, are reassessing his work and being like, yeah, there looks like there's a little bit of confirmation bias going on here. Is that that what you're saying? Exactly. What I just described, uh, you know, describing the similarities between these trickster mythologies, you can't help but think, oh, wow, there has to be some sort of universality to this. Sure. But if you look further, there's huge differences between those trickster myths. You know, some cultures, the trickster is really a a figure to be, um, to show a bad example of, of, human behavior. So the trickster Mm -hmm. tries to trick and manipulate, and then they are punished for that. And it's a lesson. Don't be a trickster. And then there are some myths where the trickster actually kind of wins. He gets away with it. Yeah. Like Um, the Pied Piper, you could say. Right. Yeah. So, you know, those are very different. (laughs) Um, but it really makes you think about how, because I mean, I I will admit I I kind of bought into this hook, line, and sinker without really doing much of my own research, um, and it was you know, <laughs> at this stage in my life, I'm X number of years old. It's you know, and I most of my life I kind of had this really more this desire for there to be more of a universality. Well, sure, and, but kind of to bring up your point though your desire for there to be universal truths would have influenced you to read Campbell's work or at least headlines about it, whatever. And then be like, yep, that checks the boxes that I'm looking to be checked and we're done here. I'm moving on. I don't need to think about mythology again. (laughs) But that's, I mean, when it comes to mythology, it's rather innocuous. I mean, it's not like, it's not like your perception of Loki and his relation to the spider of, um, the tribe that you mentioned earlier, who I cannot remember right now, that's not going to change your life necessarily, right? Whereas there are other ways we can use confirmation bias that, as we all are very, very well aware of in the year of 2020, can drastically shape the way you view the world and therefore what decisions you make. Speak for yourself. I'm on comparative mythology message boards all the time. (laughs) Really trolling those comparativists. (laughs) It gets pretty brutal in there, let me tell you. Fair enough, fair enough. But that's that's a perfect that's a perfect point, you know. Uh actually let's talk about bias because you know, I, I think that most smart people, most you know, averagely intelligent people have a at least what they think of as a good understanding of what bias is. You know, you read a story with obvious bias and you, okay, well, clearly this person has an agenda. (laughs) Right. But I kind of think, and let, you know, let me know if you agree with this or not. I think that bias can take on such a, like a, a, a very, very subtle character or a subtle manifestation of bias that really that really 
can lead to some erroneous conclusions. I mean, my, you know, like you said, innocuous conclusion um, is a perfect example. You know, it's it's really easy to read someone else's research and they've come up with, you know, their data points and their lines of reasoning and it leads to this conclusion. And it seems like a pretty comprehensive discussion about that topic. And so you think, okay, yeah, you know, this is, this is, this is right. And then once you, once you kind of have an idea of what you think is the right conclusion or what you want to be the right conclusion, Mm -hmm. it's very, very easy to continue to read sources that back you up and to attack or try and discredit or not, or ignore completely the sources that go against your, your argument, your point, your conclusion. Right. Which when you pair that with this natural human tendency, I would say <clears throat> to try and make a generalized statement about humanity, you know, cause I'm qualified to do that. I think when you add the internet to the mix and the ease of distribution of information, it's no surprise that our world is such a mess and so fragmented because everyone can exist inside their own echo chamber because it's so easy to choose where you get your information from. And I mean, a lot of people even like kind of wear it as a badge. Like, oh, I don't listen. If you're having a conversation with a friend, you say, oh, I read this article on this from this source. That other person very could very well likely turn to you and say, oh, I don't actually trust that as a news source. So I don't really care. Or like, actually, now I'm having doubts about who you are as a person because you trust that as a news source when I don't. So you can start to infer a lot of things through this, like what you believe is true, just by saying, this is who I, this is, these are the stories I choose to believe, right? Which is getting super heady and a bit esoteric. But basically it comes down to the idea that like we all, just like Dave, I'm convinced that life never progresses past middle school in the sense that to carry out this analogy, it's like being in sixth grade again and hearing a rumor during recess or lunch hour or something, right? You're going to choose whether or not you think that rumor is true, probably in a half second. And then you're going to decide whether or not you're going to share it with someone else. The answer is usually like, oh, that's interesting because it's a rumor you know, like Susie kissed Tommy, like that's crazy. I'm going to go tell my friend Jeff about this because maybe Jeff will find it funny. Like it's super simple how gossip travels. And in Mm -hmm. middle school, it seems so trite and innate. And, you know, we think of it as silly, but I don't think we ever leave that, that mind frame. Sure. We have some more complicated nuances to our thinking, but we're essentially sixth graders still. (laughs) You know, I, I have often given this example, and this is this is kind of related. Um, y- you know, there's so much anger around the like the critical hot button political issues of our day, mm-hmm. um, and it, you know, somebody brings up the opposite of what you believe, and you just you know, you react with anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always thought that in in if you react to one of those points in anger, that anger is really born out of fear, fear that you might be wrong or that you can't totally disprove what the other person's saying, or there's something that, you oh, know, maybe I'm not right. Because if somebody came to you and said, the 
earth is the earth revolves or, or the sun revolves around the earth or uh, the sky go. is green or something just so blatantly incorrect. You would never react with anger. You'd react with pity. Like, ah, I'm so sorry that you are just so, you know, let, let, let me help you. Something's wrong with you. Um, because you are 100% confident that you have the right answer. Sure. But sure. anger is sort of this, you know, this idea of, of fear. And I think, I think that fear is born out of the fact that deep down you, you don't, you realize you might not have all of the, all of the facts or not even all the facts, but you have significant bias. Sure. Yeah. yeah does that yeah. make any sense? No, it, do, it does make sense. I, I think the knee jerk reaction of fear as being attributed to a core sense of un, like not willing to test your own integrity, that makes total sense to me. I think, you know, kind of what's interesting about how this relates to myths is myths are usually just about human to God interactions, or to some degree, there's a divinity, a deist involved in this story. And, and mainly it's because this is, myths are usually there to tell us why the world behaves the way it behaves, right? So we ascribe stories to it. Um, now in our 21st century, what we do is we typically look through the lens of scientific research to create our story, right? And not to say that scientific research and mythology are the same thing, because they very much aren't, but inside of scientific research, mythologies can pop up, kind of like we just talked about, right? This idea of the hero's journey. And there's plenty of people who have commented from an academic perspective from a quasi-scientific perspective, saying, actually, we don't think that Campbell's conclusions were correct, yet there was a lot of scientific thought that was based on that being true, right? So, which is a roundabout way of saying, everything you just said makes total sense to me. Because I think the way we feel the need as humans to know and be known, right? We want to know the world around us, and deep down inside of somewhere, we also want to be fully known, right? Which, you know, becoming intimate with someone, not physically, well, physically and emotionally, is the process of being known, right? Exposing yourself, opening yourself up for criticism. Um, mm-hmm. So those are two key things that we want. And so myths make so much sense because it gives us an apparatus to use to understand the world. And it's really important to have that apparatus because if you have to critically think about every decision in your life, you will do nothing because you will still be like hung up on like, well, should I tie my left shoe or my right shoe first? (laughs) It doesn't matter. Your left shoe, your right, it's fine. It's going to be okay. So if you just get into this pattern of like, well, I'm always going to tie my right shoe first and my left shoe first, all of a sudden you've created these pathways in your brain where you just don't have to think about tying your shoes. You just kind of autonomically do it. That's kind of what mythology is, is like, well we know that the trickster behaves a certain way and we know that the trickster people who act in a tricky way have effects on others in society. So a way for us to explain that is there was this spider who convinced this deity to make it rain was kind of, you know, and then the story goes on from there. So I think it's a really good way for us to encode meaning into our life. And I think humans always do that through stories. Um, it's funny. You were earlier mentioning kind of like, um, people who are have different beliefs than you and how um, those beliefs matching up can sometimes be an issue. It's funny because I was, when you first mentioned that I was thinking as a sales professional, I was like, Oh no, that's beautiful. If you can understand someone's belief system, 
if you understand why they do what they do, then you can properly and effectively sell whatever you're trying to sell to them, right? Um, so like, like trying to sell a pool to someone who lives in the northern province of Canada, it's going to be really difficult because why would they build a pool in Canada? You know, it might be like summer <laughs> weather for three weeks a year, right? So it wouldn't make sense. Now, if you were a crafty salesperson and thought, well, they don't need a pool, but clearly they need a sauna, right? Then all of a sudden your need or what you're offering matches that individual's need. And I think that's what I'm trying to say is when someone disagrees with you for whatever reason, I think it's usually wise to figure out why they disagree with you. Mainly because A, it forces them to explain themselves, right? Which kind of going back mm-hmm. to, especially if it's a, you know, teetering on the edge of argument, you know, it's you and your uncle at Christmas, although you probably shouldn't be with your uncle at Christmas, and you have different opposing political views, and you're kind of, you know, you know how that conversation goes, where you're politically sparring, but you also know you need to keep it, like, somewhat happy, because it's a family gathering. It's like, this is the only time of year I get to see you, right? Mm-hmm. But if you just kind of go back back and forth, tit for tat, like, oh, I said this, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? You're really not accomplishing anything. You're just spinning your tires in the mud. But if you start to ask, like, well, Uncle Bob, you know, why do you feel X about Y? Then you start to open up someone who has to answer that. And to answer that, they'll probably go to a story. Because, again, that's how we best understand information as humans. You know, your uncle say, well, when this happened to me, when X happened, then Y came out of it. When I had to deal with the problem that Y brought to my life, that's how I got to where I am now, which is point Z. And, he's, and your Uncle Bob can say, this arc here could have been avoided if only this issue had been changed. Now, whether or not that's true, who cares? It doesn't matter. But now you understand a, d- a different dimension of why your uncle feels the way that Uncle Bob feels. And I think through that sort of questioning, kind of like how... This, you know, the academics who question Campbell's work, you start to bring out the nuance of it. You start to bring out the details. You start to see the discrepancies, which are also important to notice because discrepancies are usually an issue arising from like incomplete work, right? No one's going to mm-hmm. be an expert at everything in the world. It's impossible. We can't do that. So to some degree, we have to rely on trusting people who have some level of expertise. Not going to get into that boat because that's a whole nother conversation too. But I think what this is really honing in on is the fact that myths are beautiful because it's a way for us to transfer information very efficiently from generation to generation. But what also can be transferred is any bias that's inherent in that myth. Right? So, like, why are people typically afraid of snakes and spiders? Well, a lot of them are poisonous and a lot of them can't hurt us beyond their size, right? They pack pack a lot of punch, you know? But I would also argue just as much, we've passed down stories saying like, don't trust the snake, i.e. Old Testament, and don't trust the spider, which is pretty much every other culture in the world. And that just carries down for for the sake of our conversation for millennia. Just this simple idea that you shouldn't yeah. trust the snake, you shouldn't trust the spider. You know, a really interesting phenomenon that I'm sure everybody's, everybody's recognized is the difference between... <laughs> drama and comedy when it comes to timelessness or durability. Mm. You know, go back and listen to 
some or watch a you know comic you know comedic show or a stand-up comic that you really really enjoyed 10 years ago oh yeah nine times out of 10 that humor falls completely flat and maybe 10 (laughs) years ago you belly laughed until your your sides are splitting open and you're watching it now and you just think what this no part of this is funny how could i have laughed at this Mm -hmm. but comedy is so transient it's so and and that's a conversation that we're going to have another time you know what what makes humor humor but it's it's certainly not universal it's really based on a time and a place and Mm -hmm. yet you can watch or read stories uh you know drama stories that touch on again that concept of you know universal themes that that still that still resonate with us today. I mean, we're talking thousand year old, 2000 year old stories that we still understand because the, you know, the themes haven't really changed that much. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would say, so I'm um, during this uh, last little break we had or that little spell you're talking, I was actually looking up the hero's myth because I've never really examined it. Um, mm-hmm. So I was trying to dual time. We'll see how well I did, but it seems like, the hero's journey, as he simply lays it out in a very simple, oversimplified way, is that basically, here's what a hero's journey is. There's an individual who's called to an adventure, typically by a deity of some sort, goddess, god, who, whatever. That person goes on the adventure. Um, they may have some guardians appointed to them. They may not. They may be given a power or a golden fleece or whatever, you know, but they probably won't. And then they meet certain people along the way. There's always going to be a helper at some point, usually someone sent by the deity. And there's always going to be a mentor, usually sent by the deity as well. And while the hero knows these two people, they will go through challenges and temptations to achieve the adventure that they were set out upon. Then they will have a revelation moment where there's a transformation. Either they die and they're reborn, um, or they transmute into a different entity. They become a god, maybe. Um, And then at which point there's some measure of atonement, and then they return and the circle is completed. So it can go on and on and on. And to me, that sounds like generically the experience of anyone's life. You, You are born. Right, And you're given helpers and mentors, parents, siblings, aunts, uncles, Uncle Bob, not so much, but we're not going to talk about that right now. And, and you grow and you, fail, you face trials and tribulations is another way to put it. And eventually you become an adult, right? The coming of age story is very similar to myth, the typical myth story, right? And then there's a transformation and voila, the story is done. So I think there is some universality to it, but what is interesting is that when you dive into the differences, if you dive into, say, Nordic lore, and we're talking about Loki, um, it's going to look and feel very different than if we talk about um, ancient Egyptian mythology, who also has a trickster too, I cannot remember the god's name at the moment, but the nuance between those two storylines, while they share some general information with each other, I think the nuance is where you really learn who those people were and what their actual values were. So I, th- I, I like to think of mythology as more of like uh, reading historical creative writing, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to go back to like your, your comment about the stand-up comedians, 
there's a reason. I mean, the comedy is of the moment, you know, like to your point, watching SNL Saturday Night Live from, I don't know, two years ago. Well, let's do pre-Trump five years ago. And it just, it has so little to do with what our current world is now that it can't be funny, right? Because if if your joke isn't connected beyond, to reality, it's it's not going to really land. Well, even beyond topical humor, I mean, I think part of part of humor, a, a important component to humor is surprise, mm. and once the surprise becomes cliche, it will never be funny again. Right, because you know the surprise. It's not you, you know you know what's coming next. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a story. That's a story for a for a different time. Which is funny because that's kind of like most myths. You kind of know the ending before you get into it. Sometimes, right? I mean, they're pretty universal that's what the story arcs. That's what the hero's journey says. And I, the the one part of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey that I listened to was him explaining how Star Wars falls into the hero's journey. Um, and again, he's highlighting the the elements of the story that line up with the template perfectly. But, you know, I want to go back and listen to that again and try and find, because, I mean, Star Wars is is my perennial philosophy. I never <laughs> put it back in my hand. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to go back and find where, you know, because I bet you that if I go back with the, with the bias of trying to find where it's dissimilar, I can probably get just as strong an argument. Yeah. So, so I want to go back to something that you said earlier, this, um, you know, critical thinking versus these autonomous, um, mechanisms that we create. Sure. Um, I, I think that, you know, being critical of everything that we see on a day-to-day basis would be exhausting. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why we set up these, these automatic systems so that we don't have to every single day think about how consciously we tie our shoe, you know, lefty over righty or whatever. I don't (laughs) remember the, the thing. (laughs) Um, I still can't tie my shoe, but these, so, so that makes sense. But then these automatic systems are, are kind of what get us into trouble because I know you and I have both had the experience of we find, we, we see somebody who we disagree with. Then we start kind of asking them to understand why and start making argument points against, um, you know, just standard issue, having an argument. And then we realize very quickly that this person is not critically thought about their stance at all. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've had this conversation many times Be- because they're operating off of an automatic system because they haven't thought critically about it, but uh, their automatic system tells them that this news source or this thinker is always right, and so they're going to believe whatever they believe, and they're mm-hmm. not going to think critically about it. Right. Um, what's the balance point between those two? Uh, between doubting everything and, and um, believing everything, you mean? Yeah, b- between casting your critical doubt on every single thing that you come across on one extreme or the other extreme is you just believe whatever one person tells you to believe and you'd think, you'd think nothing about it. Yeah. 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 Uh, everyone's going to have to strike their own balance. I think, um, 
I think that's a, one of the most important personal decisions an individual makes in terms of how they relate to society, right? Because an individual's relationship to society is agreeing with parts of it and disagreeing with other parts of it, typically. You can sum it down to that. And part mm. of agreeing is saying, I'm going to listen to these people. Um, some of those people would be really easy. Like, I think all of us are going to say, yeah, um, Sir Isaac Newton, you should probably listen to what he had to say about the laws of thermodynamics, mainly because people have tried to disprove them for hundreds of years and hasn't happened yet. So you probably can trust those laws of thermodynamics. Now, a, a new cutting edge idea, let's say, um, to kind of wrap it up really neatly inside of this conversation, the use of artificial intelligence in determining how how much a um, someone presumed of a crime should have to pay for bail. That the current system is typically basically a judge kind of just says, eh, your crime fits in this category, therefore your bail is going to be set at X, just whatever. And the, and the judge gets to determine that uh, to his or her own will, basically. Now there's ideas of like, well, why don't we just have a, like a, an artificial intelligence system that assesses the risk of someone fleeing court, which is essentially the point of bail, is to make you go back to court because otherwise you lose potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. Why don't we just use an artificial intelligence system to codify that? Now, the problem is both both systems, artificial intelligence and the individual judges, have biases built into them. The judges have their own bias because they're humans. The artificial intelligence system has its own bias because it's created by humans. So how, how do you make the decision between like what to doubt and what to trust is... Man, it's difficult. I mean, it's more easy to trust older things, right? And I think that's kind of the heart of... Ooh, I'm not going to say that. That was going to be an overly broad statement. I think the heart of most people is that don't fix something unless it's broken. Right? So if if it's working fine, just don't... Why even dig into it? Why solve the problem? There is no problem. It's still working. I think that's the way mm -hmm. people tend to think. I also think that there's plenty of people who hyper obsessively examine the world. Um, and it's really great that we have those people. Uh, who could that be? <laughs> right. I don't know who we're talking about here. It's great to have those people though, because as long as it's only a few people, I mean, if like 50% of the world is made up of people hyper obsessively, obsessively looking at the world, we wouldn't do anything. We just think about doing things. Right. We need movers. Yeah. We need people to think. You know, it, it takes a lot of different types of people to make society work. Here's, here's, I, so I just, here's my idea of balance. When I was in college, I took a higher level existential philosophy class. And that class single handedly made me realize that I could never, ever study philosophy to this degree because mm. it was a bunch of people sitting around arguing semantically about every tiny little thing. Yep. And I, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> Guys, it's, it's fine. Like, we can... <laughs> we can move on. Just calm down. You know, and, and that's, I think, the extreme example of not having any automatic systems and just being that that person who can just question everything. But like you said, there's only a few people around like that. You know, most people want to not have to think about that all day long. Mm -hmm. 
So you need some automatic systems. You need to believe, like me, for instance, in I had this automatic system that said, yeah, there's a universality to human uh, to human nature. And that's fine. But you just have to go through life with the internal assumption that at any given point, any conclusion that you hold could be wrong. And if you find yourself in an argument and you don't have real argumentative points to back up your conclusion, then you have to either A, change your conclusion, or B, go back and really research and understand why your conclusion is correct. And, and it's fine to be wrong. You know, it's every, everybody is going to change conclusions throughout their life. And there should, I don't, I think we've, we've kind of, we've gotten to this point where especially adults, there's some sort of, somehow there's a shame in being wrong. There's a shame in, in having to course correct your own philosophy as you grow. Mm -hmm. And there's no shame in it. In fact, I think that's, that's really a badge of a very self-actualized, intelligent, questioning, thoughtful person is you should be changing your conclusions. Mm-hmm. 100%. Or, or, yeah, at least moving them, adapting them on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, but there's... It's not easy. It's... Why is it so difficult to do that? Mm-hmm.